Over the past year, a new thesis has been emerging around a great new opportunity area in games. The recent funding of Playco for $100 million at a valuation of, of over $1 billion last September caused a lot of head scratching within the gaming industry. And yet suddenly, a number of venture capital investors have become very excited about the potential for instant games that get turbo powered on top of social media virality. In a recent tweet by Andreessen Horowitz partner John Lai, he noted, quote, the next billion player game could be an instant game that spreads virally on all social networks, built around multiplayer, short sessions with drop-in drop-out gameplay, deep live stream and video integration, designed by with influencers. He further notes, quote, Among Us reached 500 million Mao as a mobile plus desktop app that required players to manually matchmake. How much bigger could Among Us have been if folks could instantly play together by clicking a URL in a message or video, end quote. In response to this tweet, Lars Doucet, founder and president of Level Up Labs and author of the Fortress of Doors blog, wrote about this topic in his blog post titled, the future of games is an instant flash to the past. In that post, he references the history of browser-based games on platforms such as Congregate, and in fact references former CEO of Congregate, Emily Greer specifically. So today, we are going to talk about the history and future opportunity of instant games, and we will do so speaking to none other than Lars Doucet and Emily Greer. Now, she's currently CEO of new SF-based gaming startup, Double Loop Games, but as mentioned, was the co-founder and former CEO of Congregate. This is the Game Makers Podcast, and here is my conversation with Lars and Emily. Recently, there's been sort of renewed interest in instant games. Uh, Playco, for example, raised $100 million at a $1 billion, val $1 billion valuation last year to develop instant games to be delivered on various platforms like cloud streaming, Google Play Instant, iOS App Clips, Facebook Instant, and Snapchat Minis. And John Lai, a partner at Andreessen Horowitz, recently tweeted a bull case for instant games, which I believe was the basis for your really great blog post, Lars. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking maybe we could start there in terms of what do you guys believe is the current thesis behind instant games and why do we think or, or maybe don't think instant games could become the future of games? Maybe okay. starting with you, Lars? Okay, sure, sure. So um, yeah, quick little note for the audience here. I have Tourette syndrome, which uh, means that I sometimes have uh, unintended uh, kind of verbal outbursts. It doesn't happen all the time, but I have to do it every time I do public speaking. So if I say anything too interesting about anyone's mother or make any weird grunting sounds, that's just my strange brain disease. But anyway, to get to the question, um, yeah. So I wrote this blog post after um, uh, Andreessen Horowitz, John Lai put out this big tweet case. Um, first, before we talk about our instant games of future, we have to define what instant games even are, right? Like right. like this other term, the metaverse, that keeps floating around, but we'll, we'll, we'll stay on topic of instant games. Um, but like people often like say this like hyped up term without defining what it really means, you know, and there's a lot of different ways people use instant games. And so first, I'd like to kind of talk about what the ways in which people use that term and the couple of ways in which people use that term is for one, they use it just to mean browser games, right? Yeah. 
which today means HTML5 games. You know, 10 years ago was Flash games, right? Um, even Java applet games if you're old enough. Um, and then, um, and one of the things that this has increasingly become an issue is that, you know, back in the day, you used to just put a cartridge into your SNES or your Genesis and the game would boot right up. Like nowadays, even on console gaming, you start up your game and it's like, would you like to wait, you know, an hour for this game to download, right? This new AAA game. So instant means more than just, um, it's available anywhere on any device. That's one usage of it, but also like it's actually like available now. You can just play now instead of having to like set aside an entire evening, half of which will be spent waiting for a download. Um, the other sense in which instant is used is for cloud streaming, right? And I'm a little dubious on how instant this really counts, but I'm, I'm willing to allow people to talk the way they want to talk, right? So people talk about things like Google Stadia and Microsoft X Cloud and all of that as quote unquote instant games. And what that means is that, um, you know, instead of having to wait to download these games, you can just like stream them from any device and they're ready already. Um, I kind of ding them for being not quite instant because they're behind a registration and login wall necessarily, because there has to be an Xbox or a gaming PC for every gaming session. And I think personally that a long, a slightly long download bar on a web game is less of a barrier than a, a forced login wall. Um, but, you know, people will sometimes use cloud games as part of Instant, and that, that's fine as long as we grasp that distinction. And then there's things like messenger games, like games that exist inside of other apps that you've already got. Like, yeah, there was a download barrier to get that original app, but at some point when everyone in the universe has that app installed, like, you can make games load within that app really, really, really quickly with no additional marginal cost of time, right? Um, a very good example of this is Hype Hype, which is trying to be TikTok for games. Um, and so you have a download barrier of getting installing HiPipe at all. But once you've done that, like you just got this infinite scrolly feed of instant games. Um, and this is not necessarily like none of these are necessarily super new trends, right? Especially everything that's not cloud streaming has been around for quite some time. Messenger games go back to at least 2016. You know, they started in China with like WeChat apps and um, everyone's kind of all the messenger apps have like kind of been doing this quietly for a while. Um, and then instant games in general, in terms of just web available games that you just, here's a link, click on the link, you're playing the game. Those have been, those are older than dirt. Right. Um, so let me rein in what the original question was, right. Is like, what's the current thesis behind instant games. Right. And so I think that I'm going to hand it back over to you and Emily here is once we've defined what instant games can mean, the general appeal of the convergence of those three different very ca different categories of things, which is cloud streaming, web accessible games, and messenger games, and basically just games that are just easily accessible on almost any device um, without too much upfront barrier in terms of loading or waiting or just BS. Um, the kind of appeal is that you can one, potentially do end runs around app stores, which is very interesting to people for a lot of reasons and other entrenched platforms. And two, you can meet people where they are and devices where they are today, rather than having to only market towards the kind of person who has already decided that they're going to take the actions and spend the money to, to have like a gamer centric lifestyle, right? You know, it's like if someone is buying an Xbox, they've kind of defined themselves as a certain kind of person, the kind of person who's going to go buy an Xbox. Whereas, you know, um, the stereotype is usually like, you know, your mother-in-law, right? You know, not to gender things too much, but on the other hand, you know, maybe a little because like the the standard gamer profile is like, uh, you know, 20 to 40 year old male guy with a console, right? You know, and so there's a bigger world out there, people who play games, like everyone talks about the game industry, but they should talk about the games industries because 
there's so many different ones. Emily can talk your ear off about this. And so many of them get neglected in terms, when we talk about games, we usually just mean the shorthand of what games, what, 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 what AAA console and PC centric games has been, you know, and I think we, we exclude all these other things. I think instant games has the potential to open our horizons, do end runs around app stores and just like be really convenient and nice and accessible. And that's kind of cool. And so I'll hand it back over now. And Emily, would you agree with that definition? And in terms of the thesis, beyond like the ability to play instantly and the direct economic model, are, do you think there's anything else behind why venture capitalists like John Lai are so excited about instant games and how Playco could get a billion dollar valuation and raise so much money? Uh, I'm never going to comment on anybody else's <laughs> okay, uh, sure. valuation, especially when I haven't like seen their pitch deck or, or, sure, or sure. seen that. Um, I would describe myself as simultaneously bullish and skeptical about instant games because I see them very much as a part of this continuum of games that have ex existed um, since the beginning of people playing games on computers at all, really going back to the 80s and like, you know, the first, uh, you know, solitaire on Windows PCs, you know, taking over accounting departments the world over. Um, I think that there's, I, I think within instant games, there are a lot of different markets. Um, I agree with Lars that I think that the, the streaming type of games is like a, is a, is a very different conversation in my perspective right. um, because there's both, you know, a login barrier. There is likely a, some kind of cost or cost barrier that's going to appear at some point and has generally been focused on different kinds of games. So I'm going to mostly put that to the side. Um, I see like instant and browser games as part of like the tradition that started with, you know, Java and Flash games and people emailing, you know, links to, you know, whatever the Elf game, Christmas game was in the 90s. And that this sort of like very viral, instantly intuitive, instantly, a game that you can instantly get into. Um, I think... The, the other thing about browser and instant games is often you, we talk about running end runs around platforms, but they're also running end runs around um, bringing games to people who for some reason are blocked from the more traditional methods. So flash game um, site traffic, especially over time, drifted more and more international to places where um, console penetration was lower, mobile phone, like smartphone penetration was lower. Um, and in particular, shooter games, for example, did really, really, really well on browser in places like, you know, Turkey and the Philippines and other places where, you know, people were mostly playing in the, in the Western markets, people were mostly playing shooter games on consoles. Flash was where you could get that type of content without having that particular hardware. Another big um, source of traffic for Flash games historically was uh, kids in schools, right? Um, they didn't, they wanted to play games. They didn't have access to um, other ways to play it. Usually had a browser available because, you know, that's, that's much harder for, for for parents and schools to police and people and kids would play a lot of flash games um, dur during school time. And we could see very substantial impacts of, you know, school and not school on congregate traffic back in the day. Um, congregate also probably had an advantage over other ones because we 
other uh, browser game sites because we didn't have games in our title. So I think a lot of school administrators took a lot, lot, lot longer to figure out that Congregate was a game site versus Addicting Games or Armor Games or Crazy Monkey Games or all of those other things. They were just automatically blocking us, blocking other people, and we kind of like looked more legitimate. So um, I think thinking about a lot of the, and, and what's happened, you know, we had had sort of watched the very like slow decline of flash and browser games and there was a, it was a combo thing where the games went away because the traffic was going away in 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 cycles and what was happening is a lot of that traffic was going to mobile and there was kind of a gap of like instant type of like immediate play puzzle game type games that had been really popular for a while um, on mobile um, and then hyper casual came roaring back, uh, came roaring in sort of in the last three, four years. And I think that was filling a lot of that sort of like genre, quickly get in um, type of play um, that had, you know, the Flash games had fulfilled. And I think when we think about the audience perspective, they're not going to distinguish a lot between, you know, a hyper casual game that they find on their phone or something that's coming around the browser. Uh, um, so uh, I think if you look, let's see, um, it's going to be very simple. I, the way I would normally describe it is like a classic flash game, um, <laughs> which isn't very helpful, but um, you know, it's very simple, fairly simple, intuitive puzzle games, often pretty hard where you're like, you know, flipping the bottle cup or some other like very simple action. Um, not a lot of metagame, not a lot of persistence, just something you can immediately jump in. I don't know, uh, John or Lars, if you would, if you have a, 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 a sort of a, better definition that you would give. Yeah, I would agree with that. Like simple to play, generally monetized off of mm -hmm. off of ads rather than IAP. And mm -hmm. you know, very, very easy to get into yeah. and generally developed very quickly and orienting around either simple gameplay or around themes or memes. Yeah. Okay. And so so to so to me that that's part of the audience need and part of the kind of the a continuum with the type of games that you know you might play in um, uh, in a in a browser. So there's both the I like simple games and I just want to get in quickly and play a few quick sessions type of gameplay that's sort of audience driven. And then there's the I can't get to other types of games, so I'm going to play instant games. And those aren't exactly the same thing. There's a genre thing happening and also a access to game thing happening that's part of this conversation. And I think it sort of wraps wraps into each other um, and is part of, to me, is some, some sort of confusion. Um, when I say that I'm bullish and skeptical at the same time, what I mean is that I'm bullish that any that instant games, that small games that people can get into quickly with little barrier are important part of the game's um, market and that a large number of people, especially around the world, um, can and will play them and will always play them. The thing that I'm skeptical about um, is that um, when something's easy to get into, it's also kind of ephemeral. And what matters is not how many people play a game, but like it's the area under the curve. How many sessions? How long do they play? What depth do they play? And revenue tends to 
be associated with games that become long-term hobbies um, and that people play and have it like sort of a longer term relationship with. And so if you think about it in terms of audience, 100% yes, this is a big part of games. If you think about it in terms of revenue, I think it can be meaningful, but I don't think it's going to, you know, knock Fortnite revenue off um, anytime soon. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. And if we were to think of, Emily, to your point, maybe hyper-casual games is something of a data point that is potentially a precursor to suggesting that instant games could be successful. And I know, Mm -hmm. Lars, in your blog post, Mm -hmm. one of the games that you mentioned is FNF, Friday Night Funkin'. Could could you talk a little bit more about what that game is and why that could potentially indicate you know, a positive data point for instant games. So Friday Night Funkin' is this really interesting phenomenon, and it's worth just looking into as a case study because everyone wants to draw all kinds of fun conclusions from it that support their own personal narrative. Um, and so I will, I will do exactly that, but I'll also <laughs> tell you why maybe you should be skeptical of my narrative. So basically, Friday Night Funkin' is, so let's start with what it is. It is an instant game. It is basically Dance Dance Revolution, which for all the people under the age of 30, what that is, is a kind of rhythm game where when we played it on our PS2s, you had a dance mat and you go up, up, down, down, left, right to the beat of some music. This is a game you just play on your computer with a keyboard, right? And I think there's a mobile version too, where you just tap arrows. So there's this little rapper boy and he wants to impress his girlfriend, but her dad is like a mean, evil demon, so they have to have rap battles. And then you just go like up, down, left, right. You know, that's it. That's the whole game. And it's got really like, uh, it has like a really stylish, like cartoony graphics. That's very, very Flash era kind of graphics, although it's an HTML5 game. Um, and I like to tell a little story about Friday Night Funkin' to just like really just hammer home the generational bubble that a lot of people, I mean, I guess all our ages are in. Um, I'm not going to ask anyone's age, but I think we're all part of the same kind of general generation, Um, is that I was sitting two feet away from ground zero of this game. Um, I have some really surprising personal connections to this I wasn't even aware of. And uh, like basically my 15-year-old nephew knew about this game way earlier than I did, despite the fact that the guy who made the game is actually a personal acquaintance of mine and has been for, for quite some time. And he was like pinging me in Discord while he was making the game asking me for like technical help for how to make the game because he was using an open source game engine, Hacksflixel, that I'm, you know, I wouldn't say a major contributor to, but a significant contributor to. And he was publishing it on Newgrounds, a site where I kind of got my start with my career, which is, it's one of the old Flash portals. It still exists. It's moved beyond Flash. And so he was part of that community. And a lot of people in the Newgrounds community have been talking about it for months so there's all these like personal connections and like ways it's like coming across my feed. I'm just not paying attention to it. Like it's not registering to me that this thing is blowing up. And then I go and I check the stats. So I start hearing people talking about it. And this thing has like over 4 billion views on its TikTok wow. hashtag, right? Like that's over twice. That, that's as of a couple months ago. It's probably more now. And like Undertale by comparison has merely 2 billion views on its TikTok hashtag. Like, and it's has made. Um, as of like many, many months ago, it had made like, I don't know how much money off of all kinds of things. Um, but one of its, one of the main ways it was making money was on Spotify, which just blew my mind. Like how is, it's a free game by the way, and it's open source, right? Two things that, you know, don't seem like they are paths to making money. Um, and this thing was monetizing on Spotify of all places. 
And I asked him about it and I looked at the charts and like musical tracks from this game were hitting the top 10 charts on various Spotify charts. And it was, and, it, and it's a complete phenomenon among the Zoomer crowd, among kids on TikTok. And it was outside of my world completely, even though I had all these personal connections to it. Even though it's made using my niche open source game engine I contribute to, I mean, I didn't create it, but I contribute to it, that I'm constantly like trying to like advocate for and looking for a killer app, right? And here it's happening right next to me by a guy I know who's asking me for technical help for months while he's building it, you know, because people do that all the time. I'm just like, yeah, do this. And I was just like, wait, wait, you built this giant skyscraper right next door and I didn't notice it because I'm 37 and old, you know, whereas my 15 year old nephew's like, yeah, Friday Night Funkin', it's so cool. Everyone plays it. And um, so that's what it is. That's how big it is. And then they had a Kickstarter recently to like make, in their words, the whole damn game, you know, to make a fancy version and presumably, you know, put in all the fancy places. Um, and they made several million dollars, I think, like overnight, you know, uh, just on their Kickstarter blew up. So, I mean, that's not Fortnite money, but for a free open source game that all the kids are playing with billions of views on TikTok, that's pretty, Some something is happening. I don't think anyone can exactly replicate that success, nor should they see that as any kind of formula, but it teaches us that certain things are possible at all. It seemed completely impossible before. Um, it's probably monetarily on track to become one of the most successful free and open source games of all time. Um, and then I have reason to believe that a lot of its weird features, like the fact that it's a browser game, the fact that it's open source, the fact that it's got its start on new grounds of all places, like it's available in two places, by the way. Newgrounds and itch.io, not two places that in 2020 you associate with just like <laughs> making tons and tons of money, right? And um, I have reason to believe that some of its weird features like that, like it's not successful despite those things. In some ways it's successful because of them, even though I don't think you can reduce it to a formula. Like I don't think, I think they caught lightning in a bottle. I think they benefited from the death of Flash and suddenly an entire generation of Zoomers who hadn't really played Flash games like my generation did, like it had all that attention to itself because a lot of people had kind of abandoned that space. Um, and then I think it had a lot to do with the fact that the Newgrounds community sustained this little culture of collaboration through the dark years of the decline of Flash. And that, that's how Cameron will, he's the guy who create one of the creators. That's the way he will tell the story. Um, and I don't fully know why it's blowing up, but it did. And then that got a lot, if you could look into the pitch decks for instant games, FNF is often cited, right? And um, anyway, I'll, I'll let, uh, that, that's kind of what it is and how it got big. I'll let you guys have opinions if you have any. Uh, and just for, for the audience, what kind of things are being shared on, on TikTok? Like what, what's, because that seems like in a lot of ways the, the engine of its, of its promotion and why is it, like why do people want to share it so much? Is there something about browser that makes it easier to share? Right. It's interesting. Okay. Yeah. So that's really interesting. And so the things that get shared on TikTok are really interesting. So you have like cosplay, right? Like people will dress up as like the girlfriend character or the girlfriend's mom, who are both characters in the story or whatever, or like the dad or, or, um, they'll dress up as the characters and stuff. And then they'll like dub themselves like music from the game. So there's the musical aspect, but there's also the game because it's open source it's very, very moddable. Like people want to put their own characters in the game. So they do, they make their own art. They do total conversions of it. They put in their own music and then they share that on TikTok on the hashtag, right? You know, and so it's become its own little cult subculture, much like we saw with Undertale, how it became this like big fan culture. And um, Cameron has very much leaned all the way into that. He's kind of, 
ideological and intellectual property and stuff like that. Like he very much wants it to be open. And that openness has allowed people to create content and share it when Cameron is not putting out an update, right? You know, so I think that's a big part of what has sustained the kind of TikTok culture around this. Um, and um, yeah, so people show themselves playing the games, but also just show themselves like just just like building on the weird cultural vibes and collaboration that this kind of thing has created. They'll put their OCs in the game and like make little um, rap battles against OC means original character, right? In artist lingo, stuff like that. It's weird. And the question that I, that I have about that is, you know, is this something about instant games or is this something about community driven moddable games, which maybe instant and, you know, browser games are particularly like lend themselves to. So like, if you think about like the line writer community back in the day and other, like uh, there's a game that I think is still popular on Congregate called uh, uh, Mutilate a Doll um, that also has like a lot of community contribution and like level making and other things. And those games have like tremendous life um, once they get going. And is that something about instant games or is that something about that type of game? Um, I, th I, th I think you're on the money there, Emily, because we have to ask the question, right? Like, like Friday Night Funking being instant might've been necessary for its success, but it certainly wasn't sufficient, right? Instant games aren't new. HTML5 games are not new. Like mm -hmm. HTML5 games are not new on Newgrounds, right? Mm -hmm. Like there were a bunch of cool HTML5 games posted on Newgrounds before Friday Night Funkin' and after it that haven't blown up to the same extent. So why why this one? Why did this one blow up? And I think it has a little bit to do with timing and a lot to do with culture and stuff. Like part of them seizing that lightning in a bottle, I think, is that they gave people ways to engage with it. And I think it being instant was right. necessary, but not sufficient. And by that, I mean, it allowed a dinky little unassuming game like that to get in front of enough of a seed audience for it then to catch and grow, right? So I think I think instant won't build your business for you, but it might help you catch that initial seed audience that you need by lowering the barriers to entry and, and allowing it to spread among this Zoomer crowd who largely doesn't have money or patience for paywalls or logins. Right, and Emily, to your point, are you kind of suggesting that with the in terms of like the current environment and what's new in today relative to the past is because we have some of these social platforms like TikTok or whatever, that if you have a, a modding community or, a, you know, some ability for the players to create user generated content, that that would help enable it to become more viral. Is, is that the, the kind of point that you're making? Um, that is... Uh, that is a point that I'm making, but I'm not sure it's entirely new. I do think that TikTok okay. is like a uh, sort of almost like a weaponized version of, mm -hmm. of virality in terms of like how much things can blow up and how global global things can be. But, yeah. you know, so much of uh, flash traffic was flash game traffic was driven by you know, Dig and Reddit and YouTube videos and other types of um, virality off of platform. Um, you know, games would get a start on on Flash portals and then sort of spread out from there. And the games that had the most life, these long lives tended to be ones where there was this level of like community engagement. So I think it's, it's um, I don't think it's new, but I do think it is, 
it is enhanced. Um, okay. And I think Lars' point on the browser side of there, you, you know, that it's a it's a less populated space now, right? Like it's less competitive. Right. Um, means that when something takes off, it can take off in an, in an even bigger way um, oh. because there is there is less competition there, but there is still. Um, you know, a lot of people playing, uh, um, you know, using laptops and computers. And I think, you know, if we think about the pandemic potentially positively affecting it, um, I, you know, I spend more time in front of my computer. Um, I think that's been true for a lot of people. And that could be a sort of a pop, like some sort of wind in the sails of something like Friday Night Funkin' that, um, you know, that the kids are, kids are, the kids are at home and on their on their laptops a lot. Right. And Lars, one of the things that I thought was really interesting about your blog post as well is when you talked about the history of instant games in terms of Flash, HTML5-based games. And, and I was wondering if you could speak to some of that history as well as maybe what are some of the lessons from the past that might inform this current trend or the, the future of instant games? Right. And so Emily's going to have a lot to weigh in on here because basically she was on one end of the business. She was building a platform that people like, I mean, I owe my career in large respect to Emily Greer and Tom Fulp, right? Tom Fulp is the founder of Newgrounds, right? My first game, Defender's Quest, was originally a, I mean, my first commercial game was a Flash game. And I uploaded it basic to a bunch of Flash portals, but 90% of my initial traffic came from Congregate and Newgrounds, right? And um, and I was able to relay that into a career. Now, how I did is interesting because something a lot of people don't necessarily realize or grasp is exactly how Flash games are making any money. And Emily will be able to correct me and elaborate in a lot of ways. But um, the reason you saw a lot of high quality Flash games is there was investment in them. Like we were, we were all little crazy little entrepreneurs. You know, we started off as kids just uploading garbage to the internet because it was cool. Um, but then there was this, there was this ad driven ecosystem for a while. And what would happen is once upon a time, someone uploaded a flash game to a flash portal and then a bunch of other flash portals realized they could just take that SWF file and put it on their own site. And it, there was evening and there was morning and there was viral distribution, right? You know, and then we realized that this was not a bad thing. We leaned completely into it as a community. We were like, we want you to steal my Swift file and put it up everywhere. So you upload your Swift file to like two places, Congregate and Newgrounds, and then you wake up the next morning and it's on like 10,000 tiny little flash portals, addicting it, like all of them, right? And then um, we realized that there was a business model here. You know, ads were, had pretty high CPMs then. So flash portals like, if I can get, build up an audience, then I can, you know, show ads, I can make some money. So I need to build up an audience. How can I build up an audience? Oh, I know. I can give money to developers to put my logo on their game. You would call these sponsorships, right? And so um, developers would, like me, I was like, okay, I made this game, you know, Super Energy Apocalypse. Um, I will see if someone wants to put their logo on my game. And that logo will link back to the Flash Portal site, right? And so when I upload it to, say, say Congregate is my sponsor, and they pay me a couple thousand dollars to put their logo on their site, on my game. I put it on Congregate, everyone steals it. Now everyone on all the other Flash portals is free content, but that game is now driving traffic to Congregate. So Congregate is basically investing in me and purchasing my audience, my distributed audience, right? And then Congregate also had some revenue share directly. Like they were one of the more generous portals where they would directly share their 
a portion of their advertising revenue with their own um, developers. A lot of other Flash portals didn't do that. And then um, things really got kicked out. the only ones, actually, as far as I know. Yeah, Yeah, some of them were pretty sketchy. Um, But you could do plenty of things. You could also, like, some of the other Flash portals would be like, okay, well, you could get secondary deals, too. They're like, okay, you got your big sponsorship from Congregate, but I'll give you a couple hundred bucks if you create a version just for my site that, like, checks to see if it's running on my site. And if it does, it'll show my logo so that I don't bleed um, users to another portal. And so you'd make a bunch of those secondary deals, right? And then... um, and then on top of that, things really got kicked into high gear. And Emily can talk at length about this is when uh, a whole exchange got set up called Flash Game License. And what they would do is that basically you would put your game up for auction before it launched. And then all the portals would bid on it based off of, you know, it was kind of like an NBA draft almost where they were like, OK, oh, this looks like the hot new game. And, you know, there are some downsides to that model because you would get paid up front and not based off of any performance metrics. So you could get either... So portals can massively overpay and you as a creator could get massively underpaid if your game didn't look sexy. But over time, flash portals were quick enough, flash games are quick enough to create and the expectations were low enough because no one was having to pay to purchase the experience that you, you started to get offers based mostly on your reputation as a developer if you could put out enough of them. And so it, it, and after flash game license, you know, um, the rates went up significantly for us as creators. And so that was happening behind the scenes. A lot of people consuming these flash games didn't really notice that. But that really created what I call a minor league of game development, where it's like you could make a mediocre game and get a mediocre amount of money. Like, whereas now if you're making games on Steam or on consoles, it's like it's much more binary. Like your game needs to be worth at least $10 before anyone will play it at all. And then you either usually make a, a decent amount of money, a lot of money, or basically no money. Whereas on Flash, it's like, we weren't all getting rich, but there was this like continuum as you got better, you got more money. And then you were collaborating with people. Newgrounds was really, really collaborative back in those days and still to this day. And um, and then Congregate would like do weekly contests where you could make bonus money if you had the best game of the week, best game of the month, and so on and so forth. And we can talk at length about that, but there was this whole ecosystem behind the scenes that was propping that that was giving people incentives to hone their craft and invest in making better and better games, and that all kind of went away for for a couple of reasons we can get into later. Got it. So it sounds like Lars, if I'm understanding you correctly, a couple of things that we could learn from the past that may relate to the future of instant games is one, you know, what does the economic model look like, and could could it be improved in the future? And then secondly, your point about the the developer ecosystem, right? Like instant games, what it could potentially do is enable the the small. Like if if we're talk, talking about develop size of development teams and budgets, that the the kind of area beneath uh, having a really big budget that it might unlock that the ability to have developers with the smaller budgets and smaller teams and things like that. Yeah, and I think that was a you know a, it's a really important part of the flat flash game browser game story was like if you think back to the '90s of game development, it, you know it was really concentrated in a few places. It was you know a few big publishers funding development, and there wasn't really much beyond that. And what Flash enabled is worldwide game development and it if you had a computer and you could you know learn from tutorials and mess around you could be anywhere in the world and you could be just one person or you could find a collaborator um half a world away and you know make these little games and learn how to do it in this community 
and then start making, you know, very small amounts of money and then larger amounts of money. But in, you know, Flash helped kickstart game scenes in a lot of countries that really didn't have them. Like I know of, you know, a place like Uruguay or um, um, uh, Indonesia or Philippines, a lot of it, the the origin of the, the game development scene there goes back to Flash developers becoming you know, through this minor minor league system of making, you know, where ten thousand is an, is is a lot more in those places um, for a sponsorship than it was in there, and it allowed people, very small teams, to make very quick games and iterate and uh, get better and become professional. Um, and that's something that. Um, in a lot of ways, felt like it disappeared when when Flash went away. And the system that Lars was talking about was dependent on there being a lot of traffic. And what happened is, you know, Flash was, you know, Steve Jobs and the browsers, you know, gradually killed Flash. But what killed the Flash game scene first was the fact that all the portals started losing traffic to mobile. Um, and and there became like this negative down cycle on the value of sponsorships because um, the portals were not were not making as much money or getting much out of as out of it. And then people sort of stopped making games for flash portals. And then people stopped coming because the content wasn't there. So there was became this death cycle there. And um, so the economics, like the audience and the economics um, are really, really important to whether a scene can build up, um, whether it can um, become meaningful. And so I think that's really a crucial thing to understand about instant gains um, is, uh, you know, is how is how are they making money? How do they interact with the platforms? We've gotten into a world where more and more is controlled by a few platforms. And when we talk about instant games, most of them are ultimately being distributed through, um, you know, a lot of it is through social networks where, you know, whether it's, you know, Snap or Facebook, there's somebody there. Or, you know, even if it's, you know, browser on mobile, ultimately Apple and Google are controlling the browser on mobile. So even when it feels more open, there's still somebody there and you need to understand how developers are making money um, and how they could make money to have any sense of where that scene might end up. One of the things that's also interesting about the Flash scene, like there's a couple interesting technical affordances that have broad implications. Like one is that Flash files, you could structure them really complicatedly, but often most Flash games for one single file. So it's really easy to distribute and move them around, right? That's a big part of what enabled this kind of like sharing virality and distribution. HTML games are still this complicated mess. Another thing that's really interesting is that Flash, although Flash was a proprietary tool and a proprietary runtime, Adobe did a really terrible job of like owning the whole stack. Like they tried, but they failed. And, and that's great because um, like if one Flash portal went down, even if it was Congregate, that wasn't the end of your distribution, right? But like, if I make a game now, a lot of these new platforms are like really like they want to be proprietary top to bottom. You know, in my other article, I describe them as company towns, right? So like, if I make a game in like say like Roblox or something, right? Like, how can I take if, if Roblox goes down or I don't I, I get sour with Roblox, I can't take my game somewhere else. I can't publish on another platform. If I make a game for Xbox, I got to make it with the Xbox SDK, right? You know, at least on Steam, I can take my PC game and take it to the Epic Game Store or try and sell it myself. 
you know, um, but like there's in so many platforms, there's technical considerations above and beyond just like an achievements SDK or your relationship with that one platform in terms of how many audience members they have. Like you're physically unable to take your puzzle piece and snap it in somewhere else. And one of the web's great strengths is that nobody really owns it, is that you've always been able to like, okay, if you don't like this person, you can go with this person. And that gives you a lot more leverage. Like you hear all these decks talking about how we want to empower our creators, right? And I call BS on any definition of empower that does not increase that person's leverage, right? That's the real test of power, right? It's it's like, it's the different, most people when they say empower, they mean fattening you up for slaughter so that they can extract value from you. And sorry to get a little ideological here, but that's how I feel about it. And um, so I always look whenever I think about a new platform, is it in actually empowering a creator by giving him or her or they, you know, more leverage, more control over their own lives, or is it just trying to increase the value they produce so that they can take more of that value for themselves. And that's what I feel like the mobile ecosystem did is that they, you know, they got all this traffic for themselves. They take their huge rent seeking fees. They also own the stack top to bottom. You got to use their SDKs. If you make a game in their format, you largely can't take it anywhere else. So you got to like, you got to like build your entire shop around just this one distributor, like on a technical basis and on a biz dev basis. Right. And they have all these sources of lock-in to kind of keep you there. Um, so I took us a little off topic. I'll let you reel us back, but those are <laughs> well, some thoughts. May, maybe then just to kind of summarize what you guys think would be the key barriers to adoption. It sounds like what you guys have, are talking about is one, the, the economic model to your point, Lars, and then Emily, you're, it sounds like both of you actually are suggesting that distribution is a, is a key issue. And, and then Emily, to your point about getting these instant games in front of where people are, if they're not going to be in the flash portals, whether it's mobile or elsewhere, mm-hmm. would you guys say that those are the the biggest barriers to adoption? And uh, if are there are there any other barriers, or are those the main things? Um, I think understanding how how and where people will make money. Um, so yeah. when I this is a little dated, so I don't know if it's accurate, but the when I was looking, when we were looking at making um, some instant games for some social networks uh, at Congregate back a few years ago, um, you know, the, it looked like, you know, okay, ad revenue, but it's ad revenue that's controlled by that social network. And then maybe we can do IAP, but most of the traffic is going to be on mobile and it was looking like that the mobile we were going to have the mobile app store fee and the plat you know the 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 social right. networks fee and at that point you know we were getting down to a really really small percent of IAP that would be coming to us and a lot of uncertainty about what um what kind of CPMs um we might be able to see um from the ad network so um you know, we ended up deciding not to do, you know, deciding not to pursue that and to, to not go that direction just because uh, it wasn't clear how we could make money. And even though there was a lot of audience there, it it just didn't it just didn't feel like there was enough there. And I think, um, you know, on browser, you know, it's pretty open um, uh, and you can put in, you know, whatever ad networks, um, but getting somebody to put a credit card in um, and buy IP uh, when they don't have an existing relationship is a barrier to doing any kind of IAP. And you're looking looking at, okay, who is, 
wanting to play games and looking to play games regularly on browsers. So there are some some real audience limitations, or I don't think that the Flash Portal's traffic would have declined so drastically between 2010 and, and, and 2020. Um, but then on mobile, we have, you know, literally generations that have been now who are have been totally trained into, I play games by installing an app, right? And I get back to that game by looking for an, an app there. So, um, I mean, like specifically an app icon on your little on your phone. on your on your phone, right? Not the like, little website. Yeah, and I'm getting a notification back to go back. And okay. okay, how does that you know if you're distributing games on mobile web, how does somebody find find somebody find you the first time? Okay, through TikTok or something like that's great. How do they get back? Right. And how do they get back, I think, is a really important question um, in all of these instant game conversations. Um, and how does that interaction between, say, TikTok and, you know, a social network or TikTok and, you know, how do all of these people involved um, um, affect your traffic, affect your return traffic and affect your ability to make money? Um, and the, those are there are a lot of complicated dynamics there that I think the platforms themselves don't really know the answers to. So maybe it sounds like we should talk about the distribution about distribution and then also the economic model, but maybe starting with distribution, you know, there's a, a number of the the platforms out there. Lars, you, you commented on cloud streaming, but also there's Google Instant, iOS App Clips, WeChat Mini apps, there's Snap, Twitch, Discord, TikTok. Right. What are your, your thoughts in terms of the future of distribution for instant games? Do you guys have any specific thoughts on any of these platforms? And then maybe also to your point, Emily, about the retention problem, right? Like I, I've launched instant games before and the retention has been horrible. Mm -hmm. And to your point, yeah, there is value to having like that app icon on your home screen, badging it, things like that. Uh, so, so maybe thoughts on uh, both of those topics. Lars, yeah. do you have any thoughts? Yeah, so distribution is tied up with a lot of things, you know? So it's like, I think the modern revolutionary cry needs to be, we need to seize the means of distribution, you know? And what I mean by that is that a lot of the, like people talked about HTML5 having all these technical barriers, right? It wasn't ready yet. Um, but a lot of those technical barriers were driven by gatekeepers who didn't want those barriers to come down. Like... What is stopping you from having a progressive web app on your phone that acts exactly like an app, except for the fact that it's, you know, HTML5 driven? Well, because Apple knows what you're up to and would not like you to do an end run around the app store. And so it's no surprise that Safari WebKit is consistently the last browser engine to be dragged into the future in terms of modern web standards. Like, I mean... Just, just getting audio to work on the thing was a pain for just forever. Still might be. I haven't checked. Can I use lately? But like all kinds of stuff like that. They, they, they've intentionally done that over and over. And all kinds of dirty laundry is coming out now in the Epic Games lawsuit. Like even if even if Tim Sweeney completely loses, it'll be a win just for dragging those right. emails out of the light. And um, so there's that aspect to it. So the thing about distribution is it's like you've mentioned, you know, all these other platforms. Some of them have not like exactly taken off. And I think there's an angle that all these big platforms, like everyone wants to build a giant, like what I call a company town platform. And a company town platform, it's like the old company towns for people who are young um, were often like coal mining towns where a, a company would literally own the town. 
They would found a town around like a coal mine and they would own the houses, they would own the mine, they would own the schools, they would own the store. There's that famous Tennessee Ernest Ford song, y'all 16 tons and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter don't call me because I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store, right? And um, so that is what a lot of these mobile app platforms are like. They own the creation tools. They own the runtime. Like your things, you, you have to use their tools and it will only run on their platform. So that's already negotiation power against you because you can't take it anywhere else. They dictate what they're going to take. They mostly control like discovery. Discovery mostly happens on platform. It's mostly top charts that they control. You know, all these things and they skim off the top and someone's going to succeed. So they're not really invested in making sure there's, you know, a successful minor league, because if you're big enough, then someone's going to get rich and you can charge them. But the problem is, um, I mean, a lot of economic economists have studied this, is that if you want people to create value, you can't just squat on the real estate and just charge everybody as much rent as you can. Right. You know, you need to give people an incentive to build like you, you have people move into your town. You want them to build. And if you just extract and extract from them, if they build and they improve their property, so to speak, it's just a signal for you to increase the rent. And you do. And so like like plenty of economists have pointed out, this is what caused the Irish potato famine. It wasn't that the Irish were too dumb to improve their fields. It's that if they improved it by one unit, the British would charge two. So they were screwed no matter what they did. And so my point is that. All of these extractive platforms are extracting too much and creators are used to being screwed with. And so you can only buy mercenary loyalty from them. And mercenary loyalty is like, okay, everyone was happy to take Google Stadia's money, right? They're like, okay, Google, I'll take your money. I'll make a Stadia game. And as soon as that money shut off, they departed the platform, right? So that means user acquisition becomes this game where the only tool left in so many of these people's belts is throwing money at each other and trying to get such massive scale that people will just grudgingly come onto your platform. Like I talked to a bunch of Roblox devs and they'll tell me how disgruntled they are in private. You know, like how much they have to, how much they have to pay for the privilege of reaching an audience on Roblox and how they absolutely have no way to take their, their creations elsewhere. Um, let alone IP clauses that give the platform control over everything you created and stuff. You know, so I think these platforms, it's like if you want a platform, like if you already own a platform with a huge audience and you want it to be fertile, you need to stop strip mining it. You need to give creators a reason. And so a lot of people are like, okay, we need to give reasons people, we need to give creators a reason to trust us. I'm like, no, you need to make it so that they don't have to trust you, right? And that's something like outside of games, that's what Substack is doing right now. Like they do what I call... They are what I call a digital crowbar, whose business model is to pry away talent from media conglomerates. And the way they do this is by putting a loaded gun to their own platform's head in the form of exit rights. And I don't think exit rights are the be-all end-all, but it is one way to make people more willing to come onto your platform. And it's something Flash and HTML5 games have and had that you don't have when you are locked into a proprietary technology that only works on a proprietary store that charges as much as it wants. Like if I can leave and take my customers with me, or at least at least take my game with me, that's at least some leverage that I have. Some reason to invest in your platform that doesn't require me depending on your benevolence. Like, every, no, everyone expects Google to cancel their next project, right? So why should I invest in a Google project when I'm sure that I, you're, you're asking me to spend my time and my money and my human power producing value for you and, and me, presumably, and then it can all just be pulled right out from under my feet. I think, um, 
I don't think that's the be all end all like only barrier, but I think it's a huge one. And I think it's not discussed because everyone's so excited about locking all the customers and creators in a dungeon behind their impenetrable moat and then just being able to ride that unicorn, you know, to a high valuation. And I think it's it's very short-sighted. Anyway, that's my ideological rant. I'll allow <laughs> y'all to, to have a more measured response if you want. Right. Emily, what do you think? And, and maybe Emily, if you could also speak to like, it, the one other addition I'd, I'd add to this question is it does seem like the going back to the initial thesis for why so many people are excited about instant game is the potential for virality. So it, are people who are making instant games, do you think they're also, do you have to kind of bank on your game going viral as well? Yes. Um, I mean, I think, you know, for if you don't have a large UA budget or a existing IP, um, one way or another, you are kind of, if you're making a game, you're banking on it going viral, whether you're doing it for mobile or for, uh, you know, PC, I mean, PC indie, it looks a little different, but it's still um, um, a type of going viral. So yes, I think, I think that's true. Um, I think the, some of the excitement is like, okay, there's all this potential virality there in these platforms and it's not being harnessed, right? Like, how do we, how do we get there? How do we get back to a place where games can sort of take out, like a small game can sort of take over everybody's um, imagination and everybody's playing that small game again and, you know, look at that value. I mean, I think, you know, uh, think of something like Flappy Bird or, or some other type of thing where, um, that happens. And that's been happening less and less. Um, but that possibility, that opportunity is still there. Um, and so that's the thing to be excited about is that I don't think we, um, we're not in a situation where um, for, for lots of different reasons where those kinds of games are flourishing. But there is opportunity there. And it's about trying a lot of different things and seeing um, where they could go. I think for, you know, if I were uh, an indie dev um, that was trying to sort of bootstrap to something, I think browser games is a great place to be because there is still that traffic, there's less competition, there's more more weird openness there. And that's, um, um, and you're not fighting, fighting against, you know, uh, $50 million UA budgets and things like that. Um, but, there are also, you know, so much of our lives are on mobile now um, and the interaction of instant and mobile in a world where there are, you know, between social networks and platforms, there are a lot of intermediaries. Um, and how 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 do those things um, how do developers break through to create something larger um, and, um, you know, how do you have something that is viral on Facebook and Snapchat and TikTok and um, iOS and Google and all of those things. I think there's something there. Um, I'm not sure I know how to how, how to attack it. Um, and that's not the kind of game that I'm making. But I do think that there's a there's a lot there. And there's also, I think, to me, there's like a, a an interesting thing in terms of, you know, building up your brand in small viral ways and then making a bigger game and making like a bigger franchise on on that. There's um, a lot of flash develop, you know, uh, you know, 2000s era flash developers 
who made hit games in the Flash era that are still absolutely living and banking on the franchises they created back in the 2006 to 2010 era. Some of them, like if you look at the the Ninja Kiwi guys with their balloon tower, tower defense games, they've been successful. They built up their brand on browser um, and they've been successful on platform after platform. They're big on mobile. They're big on Steam. Um, they're, I... If they're on Switch, I'm sure they would be big based on that historical thing. But then there's things like, you know, the Ironhide um, uh, Kingdom Rush guys. And you see, you know, there's a um, um, or, you know, uh, Edmund McMillan and Super Meat Boy and all of that, all of that stuff, the awareness and the brand and the player relationship with games started in a viral flash era. And I think there's for developers figuring out how to harness that, build it, and then get to a situation where they can, you know, uh, take advantage of it um, in a longer term way and not just in a, I got the ad, I got the ad revenue on a particular um, viewing and I'll never see that player again. And speaking to like, just going a little bit further in terms of distribution, it seems like we're kind of talking about two potential advantages of the distribution platform. The first is like the awareness. So if it goes viral, people become aware of this new instant game. Mm-hmm. And But Lars, to your point, some of the cloud gaming stuff, if you then have to like register, put in a credit card, do all this stuff, that's not really instant. So maybe those platforms won't be as good, whereas some of the other platforms might be better at that part. Right. But then... But then also in terms of value from the distribution platform that doesn't seem to exist is retention, which goes back to the point you made, Emily, about, you know, can we have an app icon? Can you badge it? Back in the old Facebook social gaming days, you know, Facebook used to allow a lot of viral notification. Your, you know, your friend sent you this gift and that, and that gift or whatever. And so whether it's like a games page or notifying other players, do the distribution platforms also in order for instant games to be successful, do they need to create some kind of mechanism for retention as well? What do you guys think? Yeah, I'll I'll say something briefly here. Is is so first of all, um, there's been a, like like you have this interesting trend, and I think it almost is like is almost like a model for like a cycle of virality recessions, right? Is that Facebook early on like allowed all this virality, like really leaned into it, and then they really dialed back. Right. There's even the part where it's like everyone started their own Facebook groups, stopped having their own newsletters. And then suddenly Facebook starts charging you to reach your own people. Right. You know, and um, so Dan Cook has this model of platforms where he talks about they start in the growth phase. They go to the engage phase and they wind up in the extract phase where once they've got your attention, they keep it for themselves. And so TikTok right now is in this very expansive engage phase. And maybe one day TikTok will decide, like, no, we get to decide who the hits are. You don't, you don't, you don't get so much of a say, and it's going to be from this list of people we like, right? You know, and if that starts happening, all this free attention everyone's getting on TikTok might be harder to come by. You might see another attention recession. Another thing is, iOS just clamped the heck down on ads, right? Like now you can't, like the little unique device identifier, they don't give that away anymore. Like I'm not sure if their own ad network has access to it, but like Facebook is absolutely having a panic attack about it. Right. And um, that's going to have all kinds of knock on effects of the ad economy and things. And so, you know, and then, of course, the thing with progressive web apps that you can't just like have a game and come down there is that I think if we see antitrust action that kind of like shakes up that world, maybe that will make change distribution a little bit. 
if it doesn't happen, and I think many people are right to be skeptical that it will happen, um, I think people are going to have to get creative and really try to see what they can do. You know, um, one thing in terms of distribution that modern games kind of have is that um, a lot of web games, for instance, can be created with, can also be turned into native games, right? So for instance, Friday Night Funkin' is made in a programming language called Hacks, which among other things lets you export to both HTML5 as well as natively to mobile in C++, right? Um, I mean, Unity does the same thing a little bit less elegantly. Unreal does the same thing, although that's kind of a chunk. And I mean, there's a million toolkits that do this sort of things. So you can take your popular Ninja Kiwi game, and then without having to rewrite it from scratch, although you probably want to match the affordances of the device you're targeting, you can start to migrate to other platforms, right? To kind of do end runs around the technical limitations. Like if you can't make your game, your browser game, like if you can't get the app stores to play nicely, you can release it on the app store. But then of course you're at the mercy of the guidelines of the app store, right? You're at the mercy of the charts of the app store and things like that. And, and, um, so I think in terms of distribution, we have these new options that are kind of becoming available to us, but we're still very much at the mercy of these large, large gatekeepers that kind of um, control the flow of virality and and the distribution points. So, but every once in a while you see someone come along that figures a way to upend the table. And I'm not sure I have all the answers. I'm certain I don't have all the answers, but um, I'm really interested in someone who comes along and, and comes up with a new distribution model that leaves kind of the old platforms in the dust. Um, maybe I'm being a little optimistic there, but we'll, we'll see, I guess. Anyway. Um, to, yeah, to get to answer your your original question, absolutely, I think retention um, is, and help for these, um, for any platform to reach its, its max, it needs to figure out retention and retention for the developers. Um, a big part of why, you know, Congregate was not an early portal, uh, like a flash portal. We came in relatively late. There were a lot there, um, but we focused on um, building a game around the games where people were collecting achievements and had accounts and had levels. And so we had a really high level of retention. We had much longer sessions, um, uh, uh, many more sessions per visitor, uh, many more uh time length and all of that meant that the de the game devs were benefiting from that. We were bringing Congregate brought people back and so that brought people back to games and we could, you know, we could keep oh you were recently playing this or we would um you know, uh promote a game once um when it was first came out, but then later we'd add an achievement to it and promote it again. So there was this sort of kind of continuing business and not just this one one moment and you know to get back to my earlier point that, you know, the value in games is about not just the number of people reached, but the area below the curve. And that's where um, I think where the, the platforms in the current situation need to improve the most um, for it to become really, really meaningful to the games industry is not just letting people discover games, but letting helping helping communities to form around the games and helping uh, for people to be, have those games and those communities become meaningful um, hobbies and elements in their lives rather than it just be, I saw this thing once and I played it for 20 minutes and then I never saw it again. Right. And I think investing in creators is a big part of that. Like a story I love to tell is Emily Greer's Twitter profile is a cameo of herself appearing as a character 
in a game by a famous Indonesian developer by the name of Nerduk. And Malaysia. Malaysia, sorry, I get that wrong. It's Toge Productions is Indonesia. Yeah. Nerduk is Malaysia. Forgive yeah. me, Nerduk. Um, but anyway, so the scenes in Malaysia and Indonesia, you know, and I got this directly from Nerduk and Toge Productions in Indonesia and Malaysia. Like they tell me that the flash scene is one of the huge reasons that there is a PC and a console scene at all today, right? Today's baby developers are tomorrow's like juggernauts. Like, like Edmund McMillan, Binding of Isaac, huge, multi-bajillion selling Steam game. That guy was just messing around on Newgrounds for years, just uploading all kinds of hilarious tracks, right? You know, me up on a daily basis for work on AIM, yeah. Right, 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 right. You know, and if 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 Emily had just blown, if Emily and Tom Pulp had just blown him off because he was just flinging digital poop on you know flash portals, you know, this major, 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 probably multi-million selling game would have never existed, right? And so many platforms just want to just cream off the top of whoever's successful today, and none of them see really the long term. Like they think that. You know, they, they want to take this kind of like backseat attitude. It's just like, I will just let the peasants fight and then I will promote the one who survives to be a knight. You know, and I, I just think there is real value in taking the long-term approach of being like, let's invest in these communities. Let's give, like talking about retention, let's talk, let's give our creators retention and the ability to continue to exist. Like, let's make fans, like, let's help our audience become fans of particular developers and then give them an incentive to come out with a sequel, right? And another game and to, and to keep investing in those games rather than just be fly by night. Like instead of just having just be completely mercy at completely at the mercy of a chart that severs any notion of here's a game. And, you know, it's just, it's just what I'm trying to say is instead of just treating it all like commodities, right? All undifferentiated content just to be poured into the pig trough, right? You know, like really understand that, you know, there's a reason that baseball teams have farm teams, right? There's a reason they nurture talent. There's a reason they invest in the next generation because otherwise the next generation doesn't happen. And if you're just creaming off the top, it's easy to like seem like you're doing well, but you're completely missing out on the fact that your industry could be two, three, four, five times as big as it is. If yeah. yeah, and I what I I'm going to interrupt because I think actually when you talk about investing in the next generation, that's where Roblox has shine, uh, has shown, and that's where you know Roblox was around. You know, I think they started back in 2005, 2006, and it was this very very slow trudge of building up their tools and building up their uh, their developer you know, developer base um, from the youth and creating that farm league. And that's where that farm league is right now. Um, and, you know, you see, you know, we don't talk about Roblox um, as instant games because obviously it's all within Roblox, but in a lot of ways, yeah, they're kind of instant games. They're just within Roblox. Um, uh, and uh, I, I think that's a, a really important one to, to, to look at now as, you know, what happens once you have a breakout hit? Um, total dependence, you know, as a as as a game developer, total dependence on any one platform uh, completely terrifies me. Um, but um, but they have really invested um, in that, and I think that's a big huge part of their success. 
Yeah, they released before Minecraft. Like people don't realize that. They think of like, especially people my generation who never played Roblox, like weren't paying attention. They think it was like, it's some new thing. It's like, it launched in 2006. Like, I think Minecraft wasn't until like 2011, right? Uh, before that, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. But like the- I, I said no to Minecraft, so being on Congregate. So I remember that a little <laughs> too vividly. Yeah, well, Steam, <laughs> that was 2009. If it makes you feel better, Steam said no too, so. <laughs> you know, but it was a like, Java applet. That was part of the problem. Yeah, you would have said yes if you could have could have got it up. But it's to your point, like, you know, Roblox, Fortnite, and Minecraft are the three Roblox-like platforms. None of them is instant. Minecraft could be because it's Java, but currently the only instant version of Minecraft I was able to find was like some super old alpha version running in a browser. Um, so there's an opportunity there, I guess, if someone wants to like get in on a metaverse project that's truly instant. Um, but on the other hand, like Emily has a real point here. It's like, if your platform already has a huge user base, like you can create an instant ecosystem within it, right? And so like, even though it's like, yeah, there's a, a download and a login and a registration barrier between you and having Roblox at all. I mean, everyone already has Roblox, you know, at least everyone under the age of 30, you know? and um, and it's not necessarily clear that they're going to age out of it. Like how many people are still paying Pokemon 20 years later, right? You know, and so, I mean, I, I think there's that's another kind of, Emily's very very apt to point out that in, in some way you could consider Roblox's whole just ecosystem to be instant within that boundary. Right. All right, so Lars and Emily, last question. Let's talk about the economics. Do we see instant games as basically just an extension of hyper-casual? Is it going to be all ad-driven? Or what do you guys think in terms of the economic model? I mean, if you think about it, if you include something like within Roblox, um, like as a instant ecosystem within Roblox, then that's IAP-driven. But that's within a within an, an ecosystem where there's an, already an account and a credit card and all of that set up. If you think about instant games in a, you know, Truly, any moment you can um, uh, just click through and be there. I do think that it's going to be very, very dominantly ad-driven um, because that barrier, like people don't generally don't spend on their first play of a game. Um, you know that takes again, and you need to solve the retention problem of repeats. Then you need to the burden of putting your your a credit card in or some other type of payment method in is real um again so um uh i think in that sort of open ecosystem yes very very ad driven and also if you're thinking about it as the hyper casual type of game just the n nature of the gameplay lends itself much more to, to ad driven um for something that's within, say, a, you know, like Snap Games or Facebook or something where, okay, that you already have an identity and there are payment methods and other things, then maybe there's more, in it, more, more possibility. But again, it get you know, genre matters a lot. How are people playing these games? And um, I do think that there is some level of cap on the size of the market until um, when it's ad, when it's largely ad driven, it's not. Yeah. That doesn't mean that it's a small market. The um, I think people vastly underestimate how big the the mobile ad revenue market is. But it's still a you know just a percentage on on um, in app purchases and direct purchases, um, and that's going to be 
getting to the point where people are spending directly is what makes, um, you know, makes billion dollar valuations really make sense. Yeah. And I always love going after Emily so that I can, can benefit from knowing what's already being said and not sound like an idiot. Um, anyway, so what I think about business models is I think we're going to see a lot of weird business models, right? I think, yeah, Emily has some really good th things to say about ads, but at the same time, like ads are just a hard market, right? And then Apple, with Apple cracking down on it, you know, I mean, just CPMs are just way down from where they were 10, 15 years ago, right? You know, or, okay, she's shaking her head, I'm wrong. Um, but, not for Congregate. Not for Congregate. Okay, yeah. well, but anyway... You know, at least at least the kind of CPM some of my friends have access to seem that way. You know, it maybe it's a winner take all kind of thing. But anyway, the point is that I think something we can agree on is that trying to get an advertise like when someone puts money into the economy, the amount that comes out as available to you as a game developer from advertisement is much smaller than if a person just puts a dollar and just gives it right to you, right? And so um, the question is. Can you give people a reason to do that without putting barriers in front of them? And that is where the traditional way to do this is to build out an entire ecosystem where you already have the wallet open and you already have the credit card. And so people just making a marginal purchase is easy. And Roblox, Steam, App Stores, they all have that just like ready to go, right? And um, doing that on the web is very difficult. But I think... You know, if we can learn a couple things from FNF is that weird things are starting to happen. Like the fact that a game could monetize as Spotify at all doesn't mean go build your Spotify monetization plan. Like that's not what I'm saying, but maybe our kind of understandings of what's possible is um, is a little limited and a little bounded by what we've seen before. Um, I think what's happening with Substack and Supercast and Ghost um, makes me really a lot more interested in the Stripe IPO than I normally would be. Um, because people are building entire business models off of Stripe that weren't possible, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago. And um, then also, um, this is the point of the story where everyone will come in with their crypto pitches. I'll, I don't have time to get into that right now, but I'm skeptical of crypto for a lot of reasons because I don't think it fulfills its promises. I love the promises. I just don't think that they are actually fulfilled. Um, but I think there are... Um, I think there are new platforms will be built in the next 10 years. New business models will be created in the next 10 years that we can't that some of which we can't imagine, some of which are totally make sense. Um, and I think there's some time for disruption here. And I think um, a large part of it is going to be some platforms are going to come along and realize that if they want to compete against the existing people. They need to leave nothing on the table and they also need to give something away. They also need to realize that if they want to nurture a creator nourishing ecosystem they need to not grasp so hard they choke everyone to death that was congregate's great strength back in the days everyone else you know with the exception of like Newgrounds, which wasn't as business focused you know we're, we're really just trying to you know we're largely trying to squeeze as much out of this as possible and so you had really low margin stuff came out like congregate was over two-thirds of most flash game developers revenue if not more right you know like one like one one i'm not trying to just yeah, so I, 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 think it's, it, I think that's one of these stats that it's definitely true of some games, but it's it's hard to know. But we were very focused on creators. Certainly mine. Yeah, and that was certainly that was why we founded it. Yeah. Um, so one thing I, I want to just call out is that um, mass cultural phenomenon uh, phenomena can monetize in ways that anything that other things really can't. Um, I you know when we had a period at Congregate where, you know, after League of Legends was such a success that like 
people kept pitching us on uh, that they were going to monetize like with skins, like, mm. uh, like league. And it just like, no, no, it's not like that's, it doesn't work unless you're, unless you're league. It's like, you know, Disney can make a ton of money on merchandising for its biggest, um, its biggest franchises, but otherwise that doesn't work. I think Friday night Funkin' and things like that is like, yeah, when you get that level of mass phenomenon and like, engagement you can do all sorts of weird things but uh, but it's also not totally helpful to think about it right. um at any lower lower level um yeah right and just to clarify my own thinking emily to your point about instant games market could potentially be limited if it's just ad based and mm-hmm. so uh, what do you guys think in terms of will it require some t- some type of portable payment system, whether it's large to your point about Roblox and some of those companies having that, if they were to externalize or create a portable payment system so that you go to a different website and there's a Roblox button, then you can pay. Is that a barrier to, to you know, expanding the size of instant games? Is that necessary? What do you, what do you guys think about that? I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting in the context that like instant games first can't, you know, like um, um, really sprung up on on WeChat, right? Um, and I don't uh, I don't uh, know that ecosystem well, but I know that there's a lot of like payment methods, and 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 that same payment methods are are integrated, and it, and it's just a much more fluid and um, kind of easy banking system, like phone banking system. And I think uh, that looking at that and how that has succeeded relative to to Western models would probably answer that question better than I personally could. Yeah, I know that there's a lot of weird payment systems in other countries that are in some ways pretty innovative. Like, you know, WeChat, like I've heard from people traveling in China that like, if you don't have WeChat money, you like can't do stuff. And then, um, and then I've also heard that I, I'm going to get the country wrong. So I'll just say somewhere in Southeast Asia, the, the like Uber equivalent is called Ridejack. And apparently, like, just from what I've heard from people, I don't have direct experience with this, like, ride jack, your ride jack money is how you pay for a lot of things that have nothing to do with ride sharing. And then, of course, throughout plenty of other places in the developing world, you have M-Pesa, you know, and things like that. And if we, imagine if we had, like, real digital cash that was easy, like, just on top of the web. You know, you just had the ability to like, without feeling really sketchy about it or being difficult, you could just give someone a dollar. We'd see all kinds of bizarre business models and economic growth that we don't see right now, just because there's so much friction to that. Like the difference between zero cents and one cent is like this huge wall to climb over, you know? And so, um, but the kind of limitation to that is anyone who builds a payment system kind of wants to like own it and like wants to like charge a nice fee and like, you know, but I think there's an opportunity there. Like, I mean, it would be kind of crazy if in the future, you know, like you could use your Roblox money, like in all these places outside Roblox. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure that will necessarily happen. But um, a big competitive advantage for so many digital storefronts is, 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 is accepting 58 payment providers in a million countries. Right. That's a that's a moat that's kind of cl- hard to climb over as a startup. But it gives me reasons to want to buy a thing on your store if I live in a country that has one of those payment methods. Um, and I do think I do think that would be really helpful and meaningful. Um, as, you know, especially if the if the terms were good. But then you get back to: Are the instant games that are succeeding are they hyper casual type games? In which case, you're back to well, 
that that genre like that's generally going to be mostly ad driven that's that's the nature of it um or um do other types of games um start thriving in a in an instant world um and i i don't know um but um i will i will plug the the meaningfulness i i don't know what's happened on on cpms on uh on ios since idfa um i i think uh uh joe would know more about what's happening there since i don't have a game live but uh you know Rewarded video, video CPMs were were no joke at Congregate, um, and um, there's you know uh, the entirety of hyper casual is making a lot of money um, entirely on ads. Right. All right. Just in wrapping up, uh, Lars Duche, Emily Greer, thank you so much for your time. And just to close us out, do you have any final thoughts for our audience? And then, are there ways for anyone in the audience to contact you guys? Maybe starting with you, Lars. Yeah, I'll say my one sentence summary of everything. What's the future of instant games? Make something that makes someone want to stay, not just enjoy it for five minutes. FNF succeeded in large part because it built this crazy community that people want to be a part of, right? And how people can reach me, I blog at fortressofdoors.com where I pollute the internet with my thoughts. And you can follow me on Twitter at Larcius Prime. Um, yeah. Uh, and... Um, you know, my thoughts are, uh, it's complicated, uh, but quick games, um, and, and low barriers are always going to be meaningful. And, uh, um, you know, it's just about what, what the form is going forward. Um, and, uh, yeah, platform and platform dynamics are fascinating and endlessly complicated. And I'm always happy to talk about it, which is what I end up talking about with Lars a lot. Uh, um, and uh, if you're uh, on Twitter, you can follow me at Emily G and see me occasionally arguing with Lars uh, about platform dynamics, um, but also talk about other topics. And then um, um, I'm also on, on LinkedIn. I don't generally accept uh, invitations from people I don't know, but if you have, if you send me a message i do always read those and i'm happy to, to to chat with people all right thanks again to our speakers and that's it everybody catch y'all next time bye thank you thank you